0: Urban Broadcast Collective
1: brings together the best podcasts on cities
0: and urban life.
1: Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple
0: Podcasts.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Maddox Lawyers, the lawyers to call when you need practical solutions to complex problems. Welcome to PX39 Today. I'm Jess Noonan and as always, I'm joined by Peter Jewell. Today we also have our audio engineer, Zach Wills-Allen on hand, who will also be helping with the recording and a short, slightly more professional video. Today we're joined by Tim Vernon. Tim is a landscape architect and the director of CDA Design Group. The practice undertakes a wide range of projects for both government and private sector clients that relies on a collaborative process for stakeholders and specialist consultants to deliver design outcomes. Tim's special interest is in the resolution of design outcomes for the public realm. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thank you, Jess. And how did you come to be in landscape architecture? I understand you come from a family of architects.
0: Yes, that's right. Well, when I was young, I was exposed to design and construction um, pretty much by os- osmosis um, through my Arctic arch- father, and I had two brothers who were aspiring architects as well. So. Um, when I was you know before school we used to get taken out to construction sites to look at uh, excavations um, steel reinforcing footings concrete pours that type of thing and in fact one morning was taken up the tower of the uh, Ballarat railway station on a cold morning and uh, I was about 50 minutes up in the air climbing up the scaffold looking at decorative detail of the um, of the railway station and looking over Ballarat so Uh, That's really how I started, Um, and then I um, saw that there was a course in landscape architecture at RMIT when I finished school, Um, so I enrolled at RMIT in 1983, and um, I saw that as a I guess a merger and what attracted me to it was it seemed to be a merger of science and 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 art and I was I was no artist and certainly no scientist but it seemed to be a way to get into that field and and that endeavor so um during the end of that course I um did an exchange program at University of Illinois um that was a that was a great opportunity and um did a lot of travel around America um saw some really good cities you know New York Chicago etc and some really good national parks and um and also went over to Europe. Um, so it got really fueled by the travel experience and, and how that
2: inspired um, design.
1: So you grew up in Ballarat, you said?
2: Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah.
1: fantastic.
0: Yeah.
2: And, and Tim, tell us a little bit about the CDA design group.
0: Well, CDA um, is a, a practice of, uh, is about eight landscape architects. And we um, we provide a design service to both the, private sector and government clients. Uh, We work on projects on the fringe of Melbourne, greenfield sites, uh, also infill sort of brownfield sites uh, within metropolitan Melbourne. Um, Projects range from um, residential uh, residential estates. Um, We look at um, entry features, entry treatments and branding of of projects. Um, Wetlands, constructed wetlands, drainage reserves, um, open space reserves. Um, We look at uh, town squares and, and streetscapes, um, we do aged care projects, hospitals, um, Very if,
2: important how landscaping affects people's mood in, in those sort of places.
0: Oh, uh, definitely, and I think if you can provide opportunities, um, for people to express themselves and undertake a lifestyle, um, and to enjoy themselves, that's really the trick and I guess the satisfaction of design work. In, th-
2: in 30 seconds,
0: how has the profession changed since you started? well it has changed a lot and when you cast your mind back to i mean i did start in 86 and um like all of us there's so many things that have changed we were doing i guess analog um you know drawing on a drawing board um we would d- do that drawing complete it via a printer and then um put it into an envelope and send it off either via courier or to uh, you know snail mail as it's now called um, until the advent of the fax machine which which occurred after about three or four weeks of me starting um, work in a small single practice. Um, And so when the fax machine came, there was no excuse if a client rang up and said, oh, can you photocopy that section of the plan and send it off to me Um, via fax? That's what you had to do. So you then had to sort of be on your toes a bit more. And then obviously with the advent of um, email and, uh, you know, web, it's it's now very immediate. So everything's got to be transferred very quickly. Mm Um,
1: Do you think there's more emphasis on landscape architecture now than there was when you first started?
0: Yes, it definitely is. I think um, in many ways, landscape architecture, although it was well established in America and and generally overseas, in Australia it was uh, very much a new profession. Um, It was only just starting to become recognised, whereby councils would have, um, or start to have, landscape architects on staff that could, um, coordinate with the various engineering and other disciplines within the councils including town planning of course. Um, So over the years it's become more of a a specialist like a lot of things more special specialist um, profession Uh, it's even there's now urban design and there's other branches of of specialisation that um, have become
2: known as well. Tim can you describe the skill set that's expected of a landscape architect these days I'm thinking of the plant ID and specification Site grading, site engineering—it mm-hmm. goes on. So, what are the sort of hard skills that you need? Well, it's um, first and foremost, it's it's knowing and understanding a site. And
0: so, um, to to know a site, you know, go out there with a feature level survey to really understand what the the lie of the land is, um, and to know when to call in specialist um, subconsultants or allied consultants such as ecologists or geomorphologists or. Um, Cultural heritage, you know, uh, experts, and so to understand the site, to know what other consultants would be required to come up with a comprehensive design response is is crucial, um, and then to be able to, um, I guess, translate that information and uh, work collaboratively with a consultant team. So to know what an engineer might be proposing, what the alternatives might be, to um, suggest. Um, other ways of actually achieving the same end result so, in so a way that's more coordinated.
2: So when you first come to a site, your eyes are just looking at all different, taking in lots and lots of different things.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and mm. um, it's ideally you you go to a site a number of times so you get to see the site under um, you know a flood event. Um, you see during various times of the day, during different user patterns, so if people are, are wandering through the site at peak hour that might be different to how they might uh, recreate and use the space in a, on a weekend, uh, might be used for markets or whatever on a weekend, so it, it's, it's important to know uh, the function and the role of that space in the context of the uh, of the site.
2: And, and say for a nursing home or a retirement home, do you spend time in those places and, and just see how people react? or? How do you go with that?
0: Um, sometimes if it's if it's um, an existing facility that needs extending or modifying, yes, we would. Um, if it is a greenfield site, obviously you don't have that same opportunity. But um, that's, yeah.
1: Just on the greenfield sites that you mentioned, do you think we've become a little bit too regimented in the way that we do... Um, landscaping in say the public squares and the um, the reserves in those PSP areas Do you know how now there's basically sort of a recipe for what needs to go in those spaces how do you find that from a landscape perspective is it do you find it as regimented as it is in terms of the infrastructure
0: It it is certainly prescriptive to an extent, but our experience has been that uh, although the PSP might um, prescribe, you know, a regional playground or an active space or other criteria, we're able to work within the parameters and still come up with something that that gives some flexibility and some um, sense of um, individuality about the space so that you don't have, within a large subdivision, you don't have the same... Um, uses and the same um, look and feel. Um,
2: so that I mean, must that be important. hard to do, Tim. you know, with big projects, to have sort of specific precincts that are different. That must be hard. Um, to, in terms of
0: the the um, active communal open spaces, is not so hard. But um, it's it's really then trying to get a thread of um, street corridors that sort of link up and create a, a continuity, or, or create you know a sense of um, precincts. So you might have. Um, different road treatments, um, different ways of, of dealing with um, surface treatments that lead you from one space to another. Mm-hmm. What sources of inspiration and motivation do you have? It's first and foremost. It's probably both the the natural and the built environment, and um, wherever you look, um, the built environment and the natural environment provide. In inspiration, and, and it might be at a broad level, looking at textures and landform, but it might also be at a micro level, looking at, for instance, um, bubbles in water, or the way the ocean patterns create swirls on the on the surface, or cliff formations and geology. So there's a number of different insp- uh, forms of inspiration in the built form. There's you know textures and uh, forms in in architecture that relate to a street, and so drawing from those type of things can um, inspire thinking and then w- w- what the narrative is to support the design is, is important, I think, as well.
1: In terms of going back to that point about public spaces, I think people um, sometimes assume, or people particularly outside the industry, would assume that landscape architects are just planting the trees as opposed to thinking about the space more holistically and thinking mm-hmm. about the, um, the seating and the pathways mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with that?
0: Well, I think the, the perception certainly is, um, and probably historically has been that, but I think the current crew of um, uh, professionals that we work with and clients, they, they realise that life is a little bit more f- sophisticated in many ways. Um, and that in a team environment, um, there is a lot to offer in terms of coordinating um, a a design so that the various technical experts such as the environmental and engineering people um, and the planning and architectural and design people are all talking to each other and and I think there is a definite role for the landscape architect to take threads of information from all these various disciplines and, and try and coordinate it into a, uh, into a coherent design.
2: That it must be necessary for smaller spaces but it, with historical precedents. do you ever look back to the work of say capability brown and things like that i mean the, the, those gardens were done in the 18th century mm-hmm. and they still past you know past muster and people find them attractive mm-hmm. do you reach back into the past sometimes to look for inspiration yes absolutely i think um history really does inform
0: I mean, in many ways where we're going um and whether it's capability brown or some of the other um, incredible work that's done more on a sort of a private estate or for some of the Grand Kings of, of France um, there's also some of the work done um, in cities like Paris where it was obviously under a dictatorship of um, Napoleon but uh, von Hausmann I think it was mm-hmm. the it was. designer um, mm-hmm. was given almost carte blanche to um, create boulevards going through um, swathes of neighborhoods to create these grand boulevards and squares um, so and people were displaced obviously but um but design has has um come about through a a variety of of ways but um it it is inspiring to 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 each
2: age it's art yes yes Mm. that's true and and, tim in, in, in your work you've got to consider many factors like safety disability access security anti-vandal proofing, mm. I mean, there's a there's a, a lot of things we don't know or mm. don't see or don't appreciate. Mm.
0: Fair comment? That is true. And uh, it's almost, you get a sense of
2: design paralysis
0: if you think um, too much about all the various controls and um, requirements. But the fact of life is that people expect to be operating in a reasonably safe environment. Um, Uh, environment if you like and so there is standards in place to try and at least to have the delivery of of a reasonably safe um, space in which to operate and undertake their daily lives but um, there is yeah there is quite a number of of things to consider and we we get as a matter of course we'll have um, either DDA consultants involved on projects or we'll have um, playground safety auditors or water safety auditors when it comes to wetlands and uh, water features and things like that that that, that do require particular um, sign off before they're um, fit for public use. Mm.
1: Just moving on slightly, do you have a career high?
0: A career high? Yeah. I'm still going, um,
2: <laughs> but he's looking for that, Jess. That that <laughs> that trophy project.
0: Well, it's funny, isn't it? I think a lot of designers would concede that the next project is the best project, but we have done some projects that you get. Gratified by the fact that people are using them either in the intended way, Mm. uh, but also in ways that you might think um, were not intended but are equally valid. Yeah, Um, definitely. And to really facilitate. uh, the end user uh, is is particularly gratifying and um so we've done a number of different projects in fact i was walking down <coughs> excuse me a, a street in in carlton just north of uh, elgin street near our office and we did a linear park which was an old street and it was converted to a park and the pedestrian function still uh, is maintained but there's a series of pods or nodes for playgrounds and seating areas um, and so, when I went past there, I saw all, all these mums watching their kids climbing up and down like spiders on a, on a big web, and kids running around, and parents, and so it, that was quite gratifying to see what it was and, and what uh, what the um, ultimately became.
2: Uh, Tim, when people are surveyed about improving public spaces, a common response is plant more trees. Is this your experience? And secondly, why can't we just plant more trees? Well you can always plant more trees. I don't
0: think there's anything particularly sinister about that but I think um, in terms of spaces um, we do undertake a lot of work that doesn't require engagement with stakeholders and um, certainly that might be on the list but but generally it's it's, um, providing for what their intended use of a particular space might be and um, you know, you might take a, a particular um, communal open space, for instance, that might be used by one cultural group for picnics and loud music perhaps, and, and other cultural groups, it might be throw a frisbee, um, others, again, it might be just sitting around and relaxing. Um, and unfortunately, in this day and age, we've also got people that are um, homeless and they look at these spaces as, as a refuge for, for sleeping. So. Um, really, we need to be mindful of catering for a wide range of uses and um, um, and making it robust and but ultimately flexible for all various uses.
1: Thank you to Song Bowden planners who offer excellent personalised service, call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website.
2: Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website.
1: And finally, thank you to Salt Traffic and Waste Engineering, who are a highly skilled group of professionals under the direction of the wonderful Joe Garrity. Details also on our website.
2: there's a a quote we sometimes use, tell me what you think we are losing and I'll tell you about yourself. What do you think we're losing in city spaces?
0: Well, I think in the the city, I mean, there's sections of the streets in the CBD of Melbourne, for instance, that are perhaps um, becoming um, overly shaded through taller buildings. Um, Perhaps they've got a sense of sameness. They don't have the sort of chaotic... Experience that you might hope for in a city. If you go to some of the great cities of the world, that are um, truly chaotic. Um, so if there is a way of, of trying to create a degree of diversity through the way a building hits the street... And, um, are
2: you suggesting less uniform planning regulations?
0: Well, in a, in a <laughs> sense, I think... Um, well, I, I completely understand regulations, um, but a good designer should be able to work with... Um, a design response that does actually benefit not only the site and its frontage and relationship to a street, but also be conscious of its wider context in, in, in a city space if that's the... So
2: let's that, that get back to one of our things, playfulness. Are yeah. we losing playfulness, do you think? I mean, you mentioned sign off of this and sign off of that and tick the box. Are we losing that playfulness in city spaces and and recreational areas?
0: Well, I think we are in some, in some ways. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the various controls and guidelines are there to protect. Um, but it does, it does make you sort of jump at shadows when you're designing. Um, but really our role is to try and inspire and, um, and, and offer the best we can and, and work, with those, work with those guidelines
2: so that um, you're really pushing the boundaries a little bit. So, so, Tim, I'll give you a common thought, uh, and I'm just quoting here, making sustainable ecological practices the absolute standard and retiring old practices such as irrigating, fertilising, using non-native plants that eventually damage ecosystems. Now, that seems to me very dogmatic. Is there a chance that eco- ecological purism with uh, public space will do what modernist architecture did to our city fabric? Um, so, in, in other words, in this desire to be purist... With are we going to give away too many things from that we like that people like, much the same as when modernism crashed through cities in the fifties mm. and sixties, mm-hmm. and that was a fad that that was the the pure, pure ideology at the time. Are we going to do? Are we seeing that with landscape? You can just say no. <laughs> well, I think I think um, at a broad scale, you know, you, you could be dogmatic
0: about um, the trying to trying to use, um, you know, in a non-urban setting to to try and um, include Indigenous vegetation, improve and enhance the environmental values of a site, um, in, including habitat. I think that's absolutely valid, um, particularly with some of the, the bigger issues we have um, with land use. and So I think that's an absolutely valid proposition. In terms of the urban environment, I think um, things like stormwater capture and reuse um, And this has come about as much as anything through urban consolidation and and trying to make sure that um, initiatives such as Water Sensitive Urban Design or WSUD are integrated into um, project proposals. So that, you know, whether it's swales or rain gardens or underground filtration tanks, I think they're things that are are absolutely valid and um, are a positive positive aspect of, of current design.
1: Where do you get your inspiration for landscape architectural design? Where do you go?
0: Um, I very much, so I have a, a bit of a memory bank, um, like most of us. And um, it's it's also just wandering around streets or looking at a particular site. You look at the site context and see what might relate to what you're trying to do. Um, sometimes you draw on some elements of history or uh, what may be contemporary design... Um, is doing at the moment um, so there's a variety of sources but but ultimately it's um, nature and, and the built environment and there is tremendous um, um, inspiration to be had from from those sources do you do a travel? not as much as i used to do um, but i intend to do that when i get my last kid through school but uh, um, travel is very inspiring it does fuel um, inspiration and certainly as a designer
2: yeah tim is it possible to create beautiful spaces whilst both keeping cost and environmental impacts to a minimum. Your work must involve compromises all the time. Yes, very much so, Peter. It's um, Budget applies to
0: most projects we, we do, um, which can throw up a challenge. Um, so it's really about trying to prioritise the elements that give the core function um, an appearance, so material selection options can come into play to um, look at moderating cost impacts but um, also environmental inca- impacts should um, either be negated or offset um, so vegetation removal or um, offset any unnecessary um, or un- unavoidable losses um, water quality improvements those sort of things so.
1: One concern of the industry um, is often that landscape architecture is brought in at the end of the project or simply used to screen buildings and, you know, greenwash um, buildings. Is that frustrating on your behalf?
0: Yes, it sort of pokes the bear. um, Yeah, uh, definitely. (laughs) When you think that... um, and you know, the role of a landscape, really sh- uh, landscape architect should be um, integrated with th- the whole project design process. And um, ideally to be involved at site assessment stage really then throws up the opportunity to ensure that the various other environmental consultants are aware of um, the various issues that might be important and to create a sort of layering process of, of the design so that when the engineering and design stage starts, it's actually a response to the environmental aspects. And then you know you've got a fully um, site responsive design. It's a value add, not a cost. I would certainly see that, and we we can demonstrate a number of times how ultimately there has been cost savings as a result of of the work that we do, both in natural systems um, restoration, it might be erosion control or um, other sort of environmental initiatives, but it also might be in the um, more
2: formalised urban spaces as well. Mm. Now, Tim, you've seen the website Scenic or Not, and we've talked about that, and uh, for listeners, in, in about a month's time, we'll be actually interviewing the researcher who's looking at that program in the UK, um, with Scenic or not, people judge landscapes, gardens or public spaces, and they give it a rating. Mm-hmm. That information is then fed into machine learning, mm-hmm. and the machines are now learning to create what is aesthetically pleasing places. So, taking a whole lot of data and then, is that scary? I think it is scary if you were to use that and apply that in a, in a broad
0: sense, Um so it, it creates the potential for something that's um, not not truly um, responding to the particular needs of an end user um, so that that in itself I think is not ideal um.
2: uh, Tim. Are, are public spaces uh, a cross-cultural condition, or put it another way, to different cultural values, um, to different cultures value the same things in public spaces?
0: Well, I think um, different groups might all highly value uh, an open space, but they might look at it and, and use it differently. Um, I mentioned before that some groups might go there to... To be in a big group and and you know do louder activities, other other people might see it as a place to really relax and and um, do not too much. Um, so I think um, ultimately it's about creating a robust space that does create that flexibility for a variety of users.
2: And we've talked to mainly about public spaces. Do you get involved in private garden designs? Um, we do, but not often. Um, and when we do.
0: Was sometimes a mediator between a husband and wife, um, which oh, yeah. you know always <laughs> wins. <too. laughs> so that's uh, yes, I do. That's that's always interesting, and um, but it can be um, it can be easier than actually dealing with a, a range of different stakeholders on, on bigger projects. So you know, there's a certain level of enjoyment in doing a smaller space, and particularly seeing it um, implemented um, in sometimes a shorter time frame mm. than, than a bigger project. Yeah.
2: And and with your designs, are you a formalist, or are you more organic with with curves, etc.? So Versailles or or organic, free flowing, nature inspired. Very much site responsive, but um, sometimes
0: you 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 might um, start to think more in a curvaceous way than um, other times you might be in a more rigid, angular. Um, geometric way but um, we've done projects recently um, on a podium level of an aged care facility where the client was very keen to reinterpret a a French garden so we had a very axial um, format um, and design which seemed to work very well in the space and um, whereas other times we'll do um, quite organic forms which seem to sort of relax the the hard edges of the urban uh, urban, um, uh, setting so I think both are, are valid depending on the site.
1: One of those strange Australian things is the nature strip. Yeah. The collective area involved is massive and there's not much nature in many nature strips. A- what a- are your thoughts?
2: A- and just before you answer that, Tim, we have many listeners outside Australia, so maybe you can set the context of what is the nature strip. Right, well, the nature strip, um, it seems to me, is the um, –
0: generally in a residential hinterland, it's, it's um, you know, residential street, um, it's the area between the kerb the and the footpath. So, if from the property line to the to the curb, there's a footpath and a nature strip, and it's usually grass. Um, although there's sometimes planting or gravel or some other or derelict objects as well. Um, Old cars. But yes, exactly. <laughs> so. Um, I would see it as um, potentially, I, I think it does provide some visual relief when you're looking down a street corridor and you see a wide expanse of road pavement. If it was from back of kerb to property line as just paved material um, and then a fence line, I think that whole road corridor would be fairly harsh. And so I think that the, the visual relief you get from even a, a narrow strip of grass, um, and you might say on a very perhaps minor effect, it might r- reduce the heat um the heat bank effect that we do have in the urban, uh, urban environment. So um, I think there's maybe validity in some streets. Um, do do you think
1: there's opportunities to um, go further with our nature strips and actually landscape them properly? Well,
0: I mean, you could even take that a, an extra step and say um, if you don't create a trip hazard, and I think um, – I'm being a def- the defensive comment there, but um, <laughs> assuming you're not creating a trip hazard, I mean, there's even things like um, food production. Yeah, definitely. With urban consolidation and the population uh, that we're, we're dealing with and uh, perhaps the, the arable land is not as accessible as it used to be, That um, there's possibly options for that type of um, mm. exploration as well.
1: And we're seeing that a lot more, I think, particularly in the inner suburbs of Melbourne, Um I know around where I live, around the city of Yarra, there's a lot of those uh, vegetable mm-hmm. bins that are being put out on yeah. nature strips and yeah. footpaths for vegetables yes, and fruit, right. which yeah. is A bit of a
2: guerrilla gardening, I yeah. think it's <laughs> called. Yeah. Right. Tim, the, the value of pleasant public spaces I think is undervalued um, in, in terms of community well-being and, and public health. And Jess will know all about this since she did a Master's in Public Health. But the, the benefits of just walking in green spaces is, is tremendously good for mental well-being. Yes, that's right. It is. It gives you
0: um, a sense of maybe connection with nature. It also occurs in in along street corridors that are tree lined and gives people an opportunity to, I guess, exor- so it's a setting for exercise and um, and just letting your mind run free. I guess so. There's positive, um, both mental and physical benefits. A bit of playfulness
2: again, Jess. Mm.
1: Green buildings are. Um are fairly common now, I suppose, particularly rooftop gardens and vertical screens and those sorts of things. Um, the lifetime issues around maintenance and resources are not always given due recognition. What What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yes, well, um, with um, green buildings, it's definitely an environmental benefit in doing it. I mean, it improves um, thermal properties of the building, reduces heating and cooling requirements of the occupants. Um, there's even there's a city in um, in Austria Linz I think it's called which any building application over 100 square meters is required to have a green roof so there is initiatives that um, uh, are mandated in some in some cities but it's certainly um, I think with once again urban consolidation trying to be creative about how you deliver a, a greener outcome not only for those environmental benefits but um, just to create a, a more Pleasing visual um, environment and, and better um, relationship to adjoining sites, so there is a definite benefit there. Um, but to answer your question in terms of maintenance, um, you know, with a vertical garden, I understand there's ten percent of the construction cost needs to be allocated for. Ongoing maintenance in perpetuity, so there is a there is a cost to it. Um, we've even just completed a project that had a series of was a whole elevation which was a vertical garden, so a series of planters integrated with the structure um, over the length of the building, which the only way to to access these for maintenance purposes um, is via abseiling, mm. and so the, the
1: sounds uh, expensive. It
0: it, it, will, it will be. The client is aware of the general costs. Um, which will need to be done probably two or three times a year. So there is, um, you know, it's becoming, um, to achieve certain results, you do need to um, allocate budgets for, for
2: maintenance. Definitely. We'll have technology to solve that problem, Tim, soon. <laughs> yeah, so have drones or something like that. That's, that's probably true. Uh, what, what do you, what have you discovered when you visit old projects? You go back, say after 10 years and you see a site, a space.
0: Well, you can be sometimes Pleasantly surprised how they're actually getting used, and sometimes you can be horrified. Um, <laughs> and perhaps I'll give you a couple of quick examples. Mm-hmm. But I'm pleasantly surprised, perhaps on one project, um, a project we did down at Anglesey after a very robust stakeholder engagement process, um, and then ultimately the the project in, in, included a marine-themed playground, which had. Um, a local artist carving out these timber structures that were things like octopus and sharks and um, uh, stingrays and those type of elements and whales. Um, but the shark took particular interest to a lot of the kids um, and they've named, renamed this park the Shark Park. Uh-huh. And they like to <laughs> f- stop off on the way down the Great Ocean Road to this park. And So when you do go past, you see a lot of kids crawling around it and that, uh, that's that's quite gratifying. But there's also projects where you turn up to Where you get a shock. Um, We've done, we do a a fair amount of work that includes um, project branding or entry treatments for um, projects. And we had one that was. um, Is it
2: like residential estates and those sort of things? Sometimes
0: residential estates, Mm. sometimes commercial business parks, those type of things. Mm. Uh, But we did have one project that was um, a five and a half metre high rock sculpture, um, which comprised five one ton rocks stacked one on top of the other. And there was a delicate design process that we had to document um, core drilling um, of steel rods through those rocks. They had to be lowered via crane um, using uh, a structural um, structural grout. And so this, once this thing was constructed and was signed off by the engineer, uh, it was washed down by a gurney and we realised that there was some hairline cracks in the surface of the rocks. Um, and it wasn't the top rock, it was one of the middle rocks. So. We're all looking at each other without any way of being able to tell whether the the, the crack was hairline and would stay hairline, or whether it had some structural um, structural sort of impact on the overall um, sculpture. So we had to, via some research, engage a geologist from South Australia to come over with a what looked like a stethoscope, but it was actually a sonar to check whether these rocks, um, these hairline cracks, were actually. Uh, structural or not so there was a few sleepless nights but over a period of months the um uh it was found that the a couple of the the cracks needed to be uh pinned but but others were seen to be um just hairline so that was a bit of a shock but they're the sort of
2: things you contend with Mm. now tim we're coming to the end of our interview what would you say to the young tim vernon starting work on his first day i would
0: say um look and observe because what you do um, when you look and observe you just find out so much and that's so important I think traveling would would help in that immerse yourself in different range of projects um, listen and ask questions of valid um, consultants to find out how they tick I think that's vital uh, critically review everything um, take on responsibility to improve the natural and built environment I think that's that's crucial um but I think liberate yourself from um, and make time to get away from your computer and and other apps and devices so that you can um, your brain is so full chock full of information that um, you need time for, for, for reflection um, and and really ultimately some blue sky thinking. just just get away from reality a little bit. So I think that's important.
1: And outside of work, how do you relax and unwind?
0: Um, at this time of year, I strap on the work boots and and split wood to keep the family warm. <laughs> um, just get out and get out in, on my property and and do a bit of a bit of work and um, get in the ocean, um, catch up with my family and and music and a bit of reading, that sort of thing. Yeah.
2: Tim, thank you very much for a most informative and enjoyable interview. And, uh, Jess, thank you, and thanks also to Zach. Thanks, Zach.
1: Thank
2: you, Jess.
1: (laughs)